All right. All right. Welcome, <coughs> Welcome back to um, our keynote lecture this afternoon on the important topic, debt overhangs and their resolution. It's my very great pleasure and, and honor to welcome to do, today uh, Carmen Reinhardt. Um, uh, Carmen Reinhardt is professor at Harvard University and I would say uh, perhaps the most prolific and most well-known uh, scholar uh, on the topic of uh, debt, debt overhang, debt resolution um, and, and, and how to manage that. Um, I think it's a topic that we all in, in Europe um, know very well. Uh, it's something we haven't done as much as we perhaps should have uh, done, and I think Carmen will, will certainly give us some messages on Europe also. But it is a topic that um, really um, was extremely relevant uh, also around the globe in many, many uh, countries um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the years after the financial crisis. So the plan is really to have um, uh, first uh, Carmen give, give her keynote lecture um, for I think roughly half an hour, that's what we said. Um, and uh, then we will get comments by, by Eric Nielsen. Eric Nielsen is the chief economist of Unicredit and also a longstanding friend and commentator here, here at Bruegel. Um, and uh, then I will chair um, an open discussion and get some of you in the audience also a chance to ask one or two questions. Again, thank you so much, Carmen, for coming, and I very much look forward to your speech. Uh, thank you. It is a real pleasure uh, to be here. And since I'm known to ramble, please, let me know, you know, so that I don't go over and crowd out uh, uh, time for discussion. Um, so what I'd like to do is um, draw on some of my work. This is not, I'm not here to give an academic lecture or to go in great depth uh, in this uh, in these uh, works, what I'd like to do is relate the work that I've done drawing on historic examples to the current European uh, situation. Uh, so with that in mind, uh, the topics that I'd like to address are essentially um, uh, twofold. First of all, stepping back and taking stock of where we are eight years after the global financial crisis, how does this recovery compare uh, to other recoveries? And secondly, talk about uh, debt overhangs and how these have been uh, addressed, unwound in the past. And again, throughout, I will very much try to map what is relevant or not relevant uh, from the historic examples that I'm going to draw on to the current uh, situation. Now, um, it is really still premature to construct a severity measure for this crisis because in my view, uh, this crisis in a number of countries is still ongoing. And by that, 
I mean that there are different ways of looking at the severity of a crisis. One is the initial contraction in output, the initial recession. But another one, very simplistic, very simplistic is to simply ask the question, how long does it take for the economy to go back to its pre-crisis level of per capita GDP? This is a very unambitious definition of recovery. It's not even going back to potential output. It's not predicated on knowing what your appropriate potential output is. Has that changed? It's just a simple question. How long does it take the economy to go back to the pre-crisis level? Uh, so the first sort of snapshot summary that of, of, of work that I've done in this area that I'm going to give does exactly that. It looks at the worst 100 crises since 1860. And it constructs severity measures. Uh, and the severity measure is very straightforward, is how much was the initial output decline and how long does it take to get back. And we look at the 11 advanced economy uh, crises of 2007 and 2008. And um, the rebound, while it is true that with the exception of Greece, the contraction in output is milder than the historic crises, the speed of recovery is nothing but disappointing. Um, if you look at 11 of the countries that had systemic crises in varying degrees. They're listed there in the slide. By 2014, only Germany and the US had recuperated to the point where per capita GDP was where it was before the crisis. Uh, two more, uh, Ireland and the UK reached that point in 2015, but let me say that, and, and this, I do not do forecasts. This is IMF World Economic Outlook. Their more rec the more, most recent projections are used. But if you look at this table, if you look at particularly the column that says number of years peak to recovery, according to the IMF, uh, it will take uh, 15 years at best for uh, Greece and for uh, Italy to get back to their pre capita uh, GDP level. Um, on average, for this group, the years to recovery is about a decade. Okay? Uh, the actual average for the worst crises, uh, it says from the 1840s, but really, it's from the 1860s, because in the 1840s we only have about uh, two of them. But the, the average is about eight years. So the median is six and a half years. So by any metric, this is a sluggish recovery, and the question is why. And this has to do with, uh, let me also, before I turn into the why, let me also say that if you look at the current sluggish recovery, as I don't need to say in this room, it's been accompanied by strong deflationary 
uh, pressures. And what this uh, chart here shows, the red line, is the incidence of deflation across advanced economies, which has been uh, at its highest since uh, immediately after uh, World War II. So I am going to focus on the debt issues uh, in connection to what factors have made this crisis uh, recovery so protracted. Um, let me list them very, uh, the very obvious ones, which is the crisis is synchronous. Uh, it wasn't an isolated crisis. Uh, it its synchronicity is something we hadn't seen really since the 1930s. Um, the, it's been argued this was part of the discussion that we heard the minister uh, on the discussion of adjustment with exchange rate adjustment versus adjustment that is uh, more gradual through internal, uh, uh, through internal adjustments. Uh, the issue of austerity and procyclicality. Uh, but the two issues that I'd really like to focus on are the last two, and this is connected to the theme of my talk, which is there's been, in this recovery, a dearth of credit. And I would argue that that is importantly connected to debt overhangs, public and private, and their lack of resolution. Um, if you compare this crisis, and we're really now talking about nearly a decade since the crisis, and you compare it to historic crises, uh, deleveraging has been very slow. And I am also here talking about private sector deleveraging. Um, but let me also say that the line, I no longer know what is private and what is public. Um, the private debts before the crises have increasingly become public afterwards, so I will address both issues uh, in the remainder of my talk. Here is gross, it is a gross number, gross total public plus private external debt as a percent of GDP for the advanced economies. Uh, there's been deleveraging, of course, since the crisis. However, I would like to contrast that to what we saw after the Asian crisis. Uh, and in less than five years, the deleveraging uh, that we saw post-Asian crisis uh, not only meant that all the debt bubble had been undone, they were actually uh, below uh, pre-crisis averages. This is not unique to the Asian crisis. Uh, the, we, we heard the minister, the, the, the Finnish crisis, the Scandinavian crisis of the early 1980s saw more rapid deleveraging. So deleveraging uh, has been, private deleveraging has been slow, very slow. Uh, now, on top of that, post-crisis, uh, as um, we, we, Ken Rogoff and I have also noted in our book, it's not unusual to see that a financial crisis can morph to a fiscal crisis because first, there is the fact that during the crisis, much of what is private debt is shifted over to the public sector balance sheet. And second, recessions during systemic financial crises are both deep and protracted. So 
this is all uh, bad news from the fiscal standpoint. Now, what I'm going to do here in how, how just so I know approximately. Very good. Um, um, what I'd like to do here is just draw on some historic experiences of how big debt overhangs have been undone. Uh, let me also say that um, this list here is not mutually exclusive. Uh, the largest debt overhangs have relied, and this is a big point of the paper dealing with debt that uh, Ken Rogoff, Vincent Reinhardt, and I have written, have been uh, comprehensive, meaning they have not been strictly orthodox, which I uh, am about to talk about. Ideally, what we would like is for debt to GDP ratios to have been reduced exclusively by economic growth. So you do reforms, you grow, and debt to GDP uh, is, is reduced. That is ideal, but it is seldom reality. Uh, fiscal adjustment austerity, that has also usually been part and parcel of debt reduction. But let me say this, the items one and two, I would, which I would call orthodox measures of debt reduction have been the norm in reducing debt in the advanced economies post-1980s. But if you look at the advanced economies in the interwar years and right after World War II, that's not the picture you get of the advanced economy. So the whole notion that heterodox, quote unquote, measures like debt restructuring or financial repression were confined to the sphere of emerging markets, that's not the case. Uh, the debt overhangs from the First World War, the debt overhangs of the Depression, the debt overhangs of World War II, uh, saw considerable use of financial repression, inflation, and um, uh, debt restructuring. And I will, uh, those are the, the themes that I want to focus, the, 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 the ones that we talk about the least. Uh, precisely because the magnitude, let me also just define financial repression. Financial repression sounds really sinister. As a, first of all, I did not coin the name. This was coined by uh, uh, many, many decades ago by McKinnon. And what he was talking about is a system that number one is characterized usually uh, by a lot of financial regulation, heavy handed financial regulation a bigger connection between the fiscal and the monetary, and a high incidence of negative real interest rates. Does that sound familiar? Um, I would note that I just came back from Jackson Hole, and in Jackson Hole, a big chunk of the discussion this year was the impact of the heavier regulation on the financial industry, and notably also on specifically the regulated financial industry on banking. So this is, this is not an abstract concept. I think we're very much uh, in that world. Uh, let me just highlight that uh, to put in perspective really what the public debt profile uh, that, that I'm talking about, how it compares to these past episodes of deleveraging that I'm going to talk about, it compares 
in orders of magnitude, and it compares unfavorably. You would say, aha, but I look at this uh, chart here, and it looks like the peak was indeed right after uh, World War II, and not now. I would put to you that now is much worse than at the end of World War II, because this is straight public debt. This is not private. The private sector had delevered dramatically during the 1930s. So at the end of World War II, what you had was public debt and nothing else. The private sector had very strong balance sheets. Right now, that's not the case. Um, I would also add that there is the big issue of hidden debts, i.e. contingent liabilities, largely in the form of pensions and the like, which were not a big issue at the end of World War II when the population was much younger uh, than it is today. So the orders, just, just to establish that the orders of magnitude of the deleveraging uh, that we are talking, the potential deleveraging that we're talking about are comparable to the largest episodes, uh, um, historical episodes that I'm going to allude to. Um, so back to the point that uh, I'd like to echo something the minister said in the previous sec session. Uh, what I'm discussing here in terms of whether we look at orthodox policies or heterodox policies, there are no silver bullets. Uh, the, any, whether I talk about financial repression or whether I talk about debt restructuring, everything has pros and cons. Everything has a cost, everything, uh, there, there are no silver bullets that, that uh, however, I think the item I would like to keep reiterating is that if you look at the largest episodes of debt reduction, they certainly included a role for interest rates, low, negative, sustained, negative real interest rates, they also included a role for higher inflation rates. Uh, and by higher inflation rates, I am talking about really running the gamut. There were some cases where you had outright inflation ex explosions. But the financial repression era that I often refer to, the 50s, the 60s, was a period that delivered consistent, I'm, I will talk more about this, it delivered consistently negative real interest rates, and it did so with moderate inflation. But let me say it was not 2% inflation. So I, I think the idea that the anchor of 2% that we have embraced worldwide may be something that central banks may be also rethinking. That so so in the, the message that I'm giving is that inflation as part of the debt erosion process uh, need not imply, you know, the big blowouts, the hyperinflations, the dramatic episodes, but rather a steady dosage of higher inflation. Uh, restructuring, this is the no-no term. This is every time, and, and what is to me, very surprising is that I can understand that there's a stigma attached to restructuring of government debts. 
because it has some bearing on sovereign risk and on, on credibility issues and so on. I have a less, I have a much more difficult time understanding lack of deleveraging and lack of restructuring on private debts. Um, I think here in Europe, part of the problem is that the creditors and the debtors are all part of the same bag. And so the transfer, the ugly transfers, because it's the, 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 the relationship that I'm aware of, and I'm doing considerable further research in this area with uh, Christoph Trebisch on all past restructurings, the negotiations between debtor and creditor are seldom easy, to put it gently. Uh, but in the end, the uh, idea that one way or another there's going to be a transfer from the creditor to the debtor is what you have. And that transfer is one of the things you have. And that transfer can be via consistent negative ex post real interest rates. A negative real interest rate is nothing other than a tax on a bondholder. It is a tax on a saver, okay? Uh, a restructuring is a once and for all uh, uh, Capital levy. It is a once and for all haircut. Uh, so these are uh, um, different ways of reaching the same endpoint. But I would like to highlight that the route to restructuring uh, is never quite the same. But if you look at Greece right now, to a lesser degree, Portugal and uh, Ireland, the share of official debt, that is debt in official hands, is the story. Uh, let me pause here to say that at the end of World War I, you were saying the woman is out to lunch bringing up World War I here, but I am actually, there's a rhyme and a reason why I'm doing this. At the end of World War I, official debts were huge. And there's a wonderful book called also The Lords of Finance that, that really talks a lot about this. Uh, and official debts uh, were not just restructured or haircutted. They were defaulted on uh, in the interwar years. So sovereign debts on official creditors and defaults on these or restructurings of these are not new and they're not new in the advanced economies. The problem is getting from recognition of the debt problem to the final restructuring phase takes a long time because restructuring is usually seen as a last resort. However, uh, I, I would highlight that whether you look at the advanced economies in the 30s or whether you look collectively also at the emerging market experience, uh, the periods in which debts have been written off and growth has resumed, uh, they do take a long time, roughly a decade or so in these past episodes on average, but uh, the there is a growth benefit, i.e. there is considerable evidence that after the debts are written off, there is a growth dividend, uh, which is something that 
I think is sorely needed now. I, as I run out of time, I would like to um, uh, talk a little more about the reemergence of uh, financial repression. Uh, I'm always amused, literally, uh, to read that uh, the concept of negative returns. I know that negative interest rate policy by a central bank certainly has a lot of novelty, okay, as a policy, as an explicit nominal interest rate, that is. Uh, however, the idea that negative, sustained negative real interest rates are something novel, there is really little empirical basis for that. Uh, it is not coincidence that in periods of high indebtedness, we have seen long stretches of sustained negative real interest rates. Uh, between 1945 and 1980, the era before large-scale globalization of finance and financial liberalization, short-term interest rates in the advanced economies, short-term interest rates, i.e. three-month T-bills, were negative in real terms half, half the time. Um, and interest rates, real interest rates above 2% were rare. And to highlight that, uh, here is the incidence of short-term negative real interest rates just covering the period 1945 to 2016. Uh, so um, unlike the 1970s in which negative ex post real interest rates were the, driven primarily by surprise inflation, the negative real interest rates of the 50s uh, the post-war era, the, the immediate post-war era, were primarily like today. Real interest rates were kept negative because nominal interest rates had a lot of regulatory uh, restrictions. Uh, and you had a positive, modest, but steady dose of uh, inflation. But I, I stress modest. And this just really highlights, I'm, I'm not going to dwell on this. The slides will be available uh, uh, on the web page, uh, so I'm not going to dwell on these details, but it does give you uh, a sense of uh, just how rare high real interest rates, the kind of high real interest rates we saw in the 80s and in the early 90s were from a longer uh, historic perspective. This is the same thing for um, uh, negative uh, long-term interest rates. Now, I would like to pause here and talk about financial repression, the other aspect of financial repression. We've talked about negative real interest rates as a manifestation of uh, financial repression. Uh, because that is a tax on the bondholder. But the other part of financial repression is creating captive audiences for government debt. And the latest uh, incarnation of that in the U.S., for example, is the uh, money market mutual fund reform that comes into effect uh, in October, which has sent 
uh, uh, mutual funds uh, rebalance, to rebalance their portfolio and unwind private debts and take on more public debt. Um, this issue is not a trivial one, and as I mentioned, part of the discussion in Jackson Hole had a very strong focus on what this could do in terms of crowding out, uh, also in terms of what the financial uh, regulations that re in, in very explicitly bias financial institutions towards holding more government debt can also uh, imply for disintermediation. Um, let me say the following, that uh, I noted that no, none of the, uh, none of the m items in the menu were silver bullets. Financial repression did actually reduce government debt in the advanced economies. It works as a tax between 1% and 5% GDP a year uh, in years in which uh, real interest rates were negative. But it did fuel the uh, growth of the uh, um, uh, well, the disintermediation of the banking system uh, in favor of shadow banking, something that we are uh, starting to see a bit of in uh, the uh, in the U.S. And so, what um, what are the options? Well, I don't want to suggest that all these uh, items, the issue of uh, restructuring, or even the issue of financial repression, since advanced economies also obviously uh, include countries outside the eurozone, that the weight. Uh, of each one of these options is the same across countries. I think restructuring is far more pressing uh, in periphery Europe, and I just don't mean Greece alone. Um, I think that um, the, uh, I, the, debt o the magnitude of the debt overhang in connection with a very slow growth we're slow recovery. Uh, the challenges we are seeing in Italy uh, with restructuring the banking system, uh, the fact that uh, growth has still not resumed in Portugal in a magnitude that uh, we uh, would, would desire. The, the, the whole issue of restructuring, which does involve uh, both public and private debts, I think sooner or later will have to be uh, will have to be tackled. I don't think we're going to grow uh, out of this uh, crisis, um, and I do not want to leave on a very negative note. Uh, I don't want to leave on the note that nothing has happened uh, since 2008. I think the minister's slide 
on the shift in the current account uh, very much highlighted uh, how much has transpired in the near decade after the crisis, but that the end game uh, to the debt overhang is going to involve unorthodox, an unorthodox mix as in previous debt reductions. I am fairly convinced that uh, that will be part and parcel of the solution, and I'll leave it there. Okay. Th thank you so much, uh, Carmen. Uh, I think that was a very, very good uh, uh, and very interesting presentation. And I note that um, your remarks were not just covering Greece, uh, but also uh, another country, and you even mentioned the name Italy once. But I'm not sure that I think your, your, your points were much broader. And so I think uh, we will hear now um, uh, remarks and comments by, by Eric Nielsen, who is, of course, chief economist at UniCredit and knows Italy very well, but not just Italy, is also a good economist. So uh, I look forward to. <laughs> thanks for that. First of all, um, thanks for inviting me. And, and uh, I haven't met Carmen before. And I, I told her outside that I've obviously. So on a personal note, thanks for all, everything you've written. It's enlightened us all tremendously. Uh, I told her outside that um, it so happened when she sort of reinvigorated the financial repression uh, discussion in 2011, that coincided with me changing from Goldman to Italian-based Unicredit. So uh, at times it sort of reminded me a little bit of Al Gore's inconvenient truth uh, that I was reading, and it was not always very pleasant, but, but always uh, incredibly enlightening. I'll, I'll give my comments in two segments. First, I'll use the opportunity to ask two or three questions from the presentation, from your papers that I haven't really got my head around. And then I want to talk very briefly about the two issues that you mentioned, financial repression and, and debt restructuring, in reality, in Europe today, and let's call the spade the spade, Italy. So I'll, I'll let me, uh, very quickly, um, the first thing, as you pointed out, um, it, it has to do with causality, and I have never got my head fully around whether too much debt causes too little growth or too little growth causes too much debt. Uh, so, for example, when you say only four countries in total have restored per capita GDP levels to pre-crisis levels, maybe GDP was artificially elevated beforehand. Maybe there is a degree of, of a secular stagnation maybe now, and it's not because of the debt. Maybe. I don't know if it is. I'll tell you, I just look, or a colleague of mine just looked this up. Uh, in uh, 2011 and 12, if you look at Bloomberg, uh, there is sort of a thrift, 30 to 50 articles a month with uh, financial repression. Now there's about five. But now there's about 50 a month on secular stagnation. So, it, so the, 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 the game may be moving on a little bit. So I don't know which one of it is, and I wonder whether you, I'm sure you thought about it, but whether you want to comment on it. The second thing I wanted to, first of all, comment on is that it's rare that you see academics so clearly, our papers at least, so clearly distinguish between domestic debt and foreign debt, local FX debt and foreign, foreign currency denominated debt, and very importantly, debt under domestic jurisdiction versus foreign jurisdictions, and it is. So these are very, very important for the conclusion. However, I haven't really detected that you then separate it when you see, look at the effects of the debt. For example, 
two-thirds of the Italian sovereign debt is held by Italians onshore. Surely that must have a different impact on growth in Italy than if all of it was held by foreigners. Uh, it's sort of redistribution of money running around. And to push it a little bit here, 30% uh, of the debt in Italy is held by non-bank finance institutions, mostly pension funds. Now, is that so different from a contingent liability in terms of pension payments that you have? So all the whole story about contingent liabilities, I wonder whether you want to comment on that. And then the, the, the last bit, which is sort of to introduce the, the, the forward-looking part, um, what I struck with one of your papers, and you didn't mention it here, is it seems to me that you don't get a different effect on, on, um, on growth, whether it is debt reduction or debt service reduction, which was very surprising to me uh, and can hardly be true, I would think. And I didn't quite understand in one chart why you have uh, GDP uh, troughing out two to three years before the debt event, but maybe I misunderstand what the debt event is. Now, the forward-looking part. Uh, so I'll say a couple of words about financial repression and then the debt restructuring uh, possibility. Uh, I'm rephrasing a little bit what you said, but fundamentally, to get financial repression, either you have to have a surprise inflation event. But I played with the numbers last night on my computer, and I just can't get any measurable effect of a surprise, right? It is, surprises don't last very long, and then interest rates move on and, and, and everything else kind of comes on. So you sort of have to have the, the captured audience, if you will. You have to have capital control, to lack of a better word, unless, of course, the whole world is in the same soup, so there's no ways to go, no place to go, right? But here's my question to you, uh, in a sense, um, is do you think, are we now in a situation where the financial repression that's sort of coming, is it always in a place? Is this by design or is it a, a side effect? If we have a degree of secular stagnation, maybe it's just happening, but if it is by design, I wonder what, how one thinks about the obvious misallocation of resources in a period of many years of capital control and negative real rates. Surely that must be a less good outcome than some alternative, for example, the debt restructuring. Leads me to the last point on debt restructuring. Um, so as I understand your papers, uh, you're saying with the separation of the debt between the different categories that the only one you really can sort of restructure is the domestic debt. Uh, under domestic jurisdiction. Uh, you can do the other ones, but as we saw with Argentina, you can have all sort of bad effects of this. But that certainly, as I suggested before, certainly the type of debt which has the least bad effect on growth, the, the debt held to domestic agents, is also therefore presumably the one that will give you less good effect on growth because it is, it is domestic and it's just a, a, a shortcutting of a circular system inside. Um, and it is obviously the politically by far most complicated to attack because it is your taxpayers and your voters that you're de facto going after. So my point here is what really is the difference between the, the debt that, say, Italy holds, uh, so, uh, owes to domestic agents, households, which is and an non-financial corporates with about 7% of it all, and about 30% of it, which is to the non bank financials, another 30% to the banks. If you shortcutted that, would you not be sure 
to create the mother of all recessions because you are de facto cutting the, the, the flow inside the system. And I wonder uh, whether we have the same degree of, or we have uh, the experience from other countries to, to say anything meaningful about it. And it comes back to this issue between explicit debt and, and contingent liabilities. Over the last two, three years, both Poland and Hungary somehow decided that now they didn't like the fully funded pension systems anymore. So they just changed explicit debt to implicit debt by basically cutting it down and go back to the, and, and I don't know if there's somebody from the credit agencies. Strangely, credit rating agencies saw, thought that was completely credit neutral. But how in the world can that be completely credit neutral if you are moving explicit debt that we all hate into contingent liabilities that we don't seem to worry so much about? So either it was a default or it must have been credit positive. So I, so I, I wonder whether you could speak a little bit about that difference, um, and I'll leave it like this, I think. Thanks. Well, I, I, I will first want to thank uh, Eric for very insightful and very wonderful comments and questions that really does give me an opportunity on, touch on touching on things that I uh, glossed over in, in, in my presentation. I don't know that I can address all of them, but I will do my best. Um, on the issue of causality, uh, it, does debt cause growth? Does growth cause debt? It depends at what frequency. On the cyclical frequency, <coughs> business cycle frequency, of course, debt is very endogenous. And that is a point that we made <coughs> when we said, look, a, a banking crisis can lead to a debt crisis precisely because of the feedback that revenues fall during the recession, uh, government expenditures tend to rise, as, and there's clearly endogenous. However, the uh, highly controversial growth and debt result, which, by the way, in 2012, we had a paper that pretty much highlighted this without any Excel errors. Um, the growth and debt is a long-term secular. So for example, who did we identify in 2012 as having uh, a debt overhang? We identified Greece, mm. Japan, and Italy. Why? Because they had debts close to 100%, over 90% of GDP back in the mid-1990s. So this was not a cyclic endogenous response, but the correct response, it's, it's, it's endogenous certainly if you look at the, at the cyclic. When you're looking at decade-long averages, um, I cannot argue endogeneity, which brings me, of course, to the issue. It, it is related. It's not entirely in, free of endogeneity, but it is close to on the issue you raise about, is it financial repression or is it secular stagnation? Right. Uh, look, I do not, first of all, I did a recent project syndicate, this is a moment of advertisement here and a couple of months ago, precisely on this issue, why are interest rates low? And I mentioned, well, Bernanke had the global saving glut. I thought that was very apropos to describe when uh, the, the Bank of China and other emerging market banks were absorbing U.S. Treasury securities at 
un, uh, unprecedented pace. It's global saving luck. Uh, we had the secular stagnation uh, more, much more recently. But look, population growth has not dramatically changed before the crisis and after the crisis. Mm -hmm. Negative ex-post real interest rates on a big time sustained basis are a post-crisis phenomenon. To me, the answer is it's importantly policy driven. But I completely take your point that it's not that there is this arch uh, plan out there by central bankers saying we're going to financially repress. It, it, it's, financial repression was not, the, the, the policies of the central banks was driven importantly by a response to the crisis, a very appropriate response of easing and maintaining accommodation, but part of that easing, and certainly this was very high in Bernanke's uh, uh, um, radar screen, was he had studied the Great Depression. What is one of the salient features one gets when one studies the Great Depression? The problem of debt deflation. Mm -hmm. The problem that Irving Fisher alluded to, that you, you have to avoid deflation because if not, your debt overhang keeps getting worse and worse. Uh, so I, I very much take the point that uh, it's not financial repression by design, but let me say, it's extremely convenient. <laughs> it is extremely convenient for financing increasing uh, levels of public debt to have negative exposed uh, real interest rates. So sure. it is not a coincidence that in periods of high indebtedness, we have seen historically higher incidence of negative real interest rates. Uh, I think the issues that you address uh, or raised in the context of who holds the debt, it's extremely important. Um, and, and when I kept saying, uh, look, there are no silver bullets, I really meant it. Uh, if debt restructurings are messy. So the issue that you raised, it, whether, whether the foreigners hold it or the domestic agents holders, generally debt restructurings are seldom pretty. Uh, if the debt restructuring uh, induces a recession, I would not be in the least surprised. But the question is, from a, a, a path, are you, and this is a, a long, and I don't have the answer, but the, the whole debate on, on gradualism versus shock is at stake here. Are you better off having a deeper recession, more turmoil uh, up, uploaded and then recover? or drawing out the recovery to the point where you begin to doubt whether it'll ever come. Let me highlight that in the US, which uh, did recover quickly, I think part of the story of the quicker recovery had to do with the fact that private debts were restructured much, much, much more speedily. Uh, anyone in the, in, in the US witnessing what happened with foreclosures could not say that was pretty. That was really, uh, a, a very painful episode. But it did very quickly reduce the debt overhang for, for households. Many of those households have returned to credit markets already. Uh, and it did reduce the balance sheets also there. So, so yes, uh, I, I would concur with you that the immediate effects would be recessionary, but let's also face it, Italy's been in a no growth path now for a very, very long time. Uh, and last but not least, I do want to clarify that 
uh, haircuts do offer a bigger growth dividend than just extend and pretend. So if the restructuring is trimming interest rates and extending maturity, it does not. Also with low interest rates. Hmm? Also with the same net present value effect. Uh, it, it, so, so, so in the analysis we did, the haircut episodes got more mileage in terms of growth rebound than if it was achieved through lower, lowering the rate and extending maturities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's just, uh, I'll stop there. I hope. Great. No, I, I think you covered covered uh, pretty much all the, all the points. Uh, but but so let me let me try to push you a little bit on uh, on on the overall story and and uh, hear whether whether you agree or not. So so if I understand you correctly, you're basically saying the Fed um, appropriately moved and that has helped basically uh, through the financial repression through the low real interest rate to address part of the problem. Now, suppose there is a central bank that has not done that as quickly, and I could think, think of one uh, uh, located in Europe. Um, uh, what, what is, uh, I mean, what is then on the cards? I mean, because then you, you end up uh, that you cannot avoid that question of reverse causality. I mean, once you have uh, low inflation and high debt levels, it's very difficult to actually get the inflation rate up with, with central bank action. So is then the default option basically the unorthodox measure of restructuring? Um, I think that before we conclude that the ECB has not been uh, as effective in dealing with the deflationary tendencies, one has to look at counterfactuals, mm -hmm. okay? We forget that. In the 1930s, which was the last time that we had synchronous deep financial crises in one country after another, we were talking about deflation of 6%, 8%, 10%. So it, here we are, we're frustrated that even getting inflation to 2% is a challenge, but that is not the same as saying that the central bank has not been uh, sure. uh, as effective. Now, does this mean that Europe will have to rely more on restructuring? I think so. I think so, and I think so because there, Europe is a very heterogeneous pool right now, and there are countries uh, that whether one uh, simply says it's it's secular stagnation, is it debt overhang, is it simply a credit system, a new a credit channel mechanism that is broken? Uh, if I can just sure. say one element, uh, fixing the credit channel is not unrelated. So the effectiveness of monetary sure. policy is not unrelated sure. to deleveraging. Because if you look at the balance sheet of banks, before the crisis, banks were making loans, uh, perhaps excessively, but they were making loans. Uh, Post-crisis, banks have been largely doing two things. One is buying more government debt and evergreening pre-existing loans that perhaps should have been written down a long time ago. That really does crowd out new possibilities uh, for, for, for lending. So I, I, I think the, the 
the blunt answer to your question is yes, they will have to do more on restructuring, but it is also very uneven across countries. Okay, let me, let me get one or two uh, questions from the audience. Um, please, the gentleman here. Um, uh, well, there is a, a microphone coming, and then, then Fra Francesco. Thank you, Marcello Messori, Louis School of European Political Economy, uh, Rome, Italy. Uh, I would like to go back to one of your important questions, that is, uh, you were struck by the fact that uh, there was a lack uh, of the leveraging and debt restructuring in the private sector. I wonder if a, po a possible explanation is due to the fact that in the euro area, uh, uh, the intermediation of financial flows uh, made by the banking system is quite important. Uh, hence, uh, a debt restructuring would imply to, uh, how do you say, implement a recomposition towards uh, one of the most fragile components of the European crisis. And uh, a similar reasoning applies uh, to another question, that is uh, a possibility to implement a first step uh, of uh, 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 financial repression by increasing the mutual funds demand for government bonds. As you know, probably in a number of European countries, in particular fragile European countries such as Italy, the ownership of mutual funds is largely in the hands of the banking sector. And banks have a huge amount of public bonds in their balance sheets. So it seems to me that uh, it's quite difficult to implement this kind of solution. Thank you. Let's collect one of those, okay. Uh, Francesco. Thank you very much, Francesco Audia from Bruegel. Um, on the question of uh, uh, the influence of central banks on rates, now, if you look back, zero nominal rates never existed in the history of humanity. Amen. You, however back, however further back you go, you don't find them. And if you look forward, they seem to remain for the next 50 years. If you look at the 50-year government bonds, they will remain around zero, very low level. Now, is this something that central banks can do? Is this not something beyond the power of central banks? Are you not overdoing the power of central banks to produce something that was never seen in the history and is going to stay for the next 50 years, according to market expectations. Um, so, so I have, uh, is it okay to take two more? Then, then we have one gentleman here. I, I can hardly see, in fact. <laughs> uh, Lars Orgott, formerly with the, uh, the commission. Uh, quantitative easing innovation uh, the central bank and the Fed and so forth have practiced that. Basically creating more liabilities on the bank balance sheet of the, of the federal banks, uh, of the central banks. A question about what about another way of creating liabilities? And I don't know whether this was discussed in Jackson Hole in relation to the question of so-called helicopter money. The effect of quantitative easing has been limited. You can bring the horse to the trough, but it doesn't drink necessarily. 
What about pouring water straight into the mouth? Okay, so what about helicopter money? And, and there is one in the back, um, and then one by a colleague in front, and then we stop. So, so the gentleman in the back there. Uh, okay. <coughs> and we have five minutes in <coughs> Thank you. Um, my name is Bruno, and I'm just a student with the VUB. But um, I listened very carefully. You spoke about financial disintermediation. And to be honest, I would just distinguish the effect. Maybe I'm completely wrong. But I believe that the states are actually um, making debt as a public asset so as to return the director rate, so the central bank rate, as the uh, nominal growth rate of the, uh, of the economy. So the states have been pulling back debt to um, themselves. Um, I would ask to you what is the influence that this has in terms of dangers for, for future economic growth. Thank you. Could you repeat, I'm sorry. Could you repeat the que the, just the last sentence? The question was not very clear. Just um, the question. Yes, the, uh, my question is, well, we are seeing that um, states are, are um, capturing the savings Right. Um, and somehow that the central bank rate will, will determine what, what will be the return rate of assets in the economy for, further on. So this intermediation somehow leads that it will not be private activity that will uh, determine, but rather that the central bank rate will eventually determine the return rate of assets. So my question is, what's the danger if there is any of this? If we, Thank you. So we have one more. Uh, Marek. Uh, Bruegel. Um, I would like to ask you what kind of deleveraging mix would you recommend for Japan? Okay, so I think that gives a rich menu. Please. This is when I run out of the room. Um, uh, so the, the, the Japan one is. <laughs> well, it, I am by necessity, given that I didn't have the forethought to bring up paper and pencil, I uh, don't know that I will get uh, to all the questions. But uh, let me start with uh, one over here on what are the effects, rephrasing somewhat, what are the effects of the sustained negative real interest rates, uh, central bank rates. Uh, this is also connected to your question, which uh, I uh, I'm going to uh, hopefully address. Um, the, one of the costs of financial repression, uh, and this is, I think, not yet internalized, are when we really start reevaluating the health of pensions uh, in an environment in which there are long periods of negative uh, real interest rates. Uh, I think that that, uh, that is non-trivial, especially given that we have uh, an aging population. I think that that wealth erosion that we're seeing is nowhere uh, well quantified. Um, on the uh, issue of helicopter money, and I, I will I'm working, trying to work my way backwards. On the issue of helicopter money, uh, look, I have 
limited my discussion to things that I understand better how they would be implemented. I am not sure really other than saying the central bank uh, governors are just going to have a cerebral hemorrhage and start printing money right, left, and center, how helicopter money. I understand the thought exercise, but the operational part remains very sketchy. So I have uh, confined my, uh, you could, uh, however, um, you could, however, say that in some sense, uh, the helicopter money experiment uh, is parts of it embedded in quantitative easing. Quantitative easing has produced uh, increases in the aggregates that more standard post-war monetary policies had not. The closest equivalent that I could come up with uh, is, is the abandonment of gold standard and the very sharp increases in, in, in money at that time. But the bottom line of my remark is if someone can operationalize helicopter easing, then I can understand it. At this stage, it's, it's a theoretical construct. Uh, I think related to the, uh, uh, are central banks going to remain uh, in negative rate territory for 50 years? I don't know. We, we have a tendency also to extrapolate, okay? If you go back to, the, and I've had this discussion in the context also of secular stagnation. If you go back to the late 1970s, the term at the time was stagflation because advanced economies were gonna live with high inflation and low growth, low growth forever. Um, Look, I do think that real rates are going to remain depressed for an extended period of time. I do think that uh, central banks have taken on quasi-fiscal activities since the crisis, including directed credit. Um, I don't see that changing uh, over the near term. And this is related to the issue of um, uh, if it of synchronous shocks, if this were only the ECB doing this, if it were only the Bank of Japan doing, if it were only the Fed, uh, I would say its durability is much more limited. But uh, I don't know that beyond five years I can. I can give you an answer. For all we know, uh, if credit normalizes, we would get more normal, quote unquote, velocity patterns and so on. We don't know. We, but I agree with you that, that the duration of it is in uncharted waters. Um, I wish I could have you just reiterate the gist of your, your question. I, I, I'm so sorry, I, and then I'll, or we do it bilaterally because um, uh, I, time, time is running out. If, if you agree to do it bilaterally. Okay. Uh, uh, so on Japan. <laughs> um, look, uh, I think uh, pensions are not 
uh, going to be what people think they are. I think that uh, if you go to the supermarket, uh, sometimes you see that an item uh, has not changed price, but that they put fewer, you know, there's three potato chips instead of 10 in the bag. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I'm very serious. Change. I actually think that default, the concept of restructuring and default can be de jure, can be explicit, can be well announced and understood. But there are many opaque ways of taxing and many opaque ways of defaulting on commitments. And I think every opaque method on the table uh, will be employed in Japan and elsewhere. All right. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thank you so much. Please let join me in thanking Professor Reinhardt.